Hi, welcome to the Two Nobodies podcast. I'm your host, Rupesh Patel. Did you know that there are people out there who drink their own urine? I was stunned to find this out, but this is an ancient old practice. And I have Cohen Vanderkroon, the author of The Golden Fountain. He wrote this ba- book back in the 90s. He's now the director of the Ayurveda Academy in the Netherlands. And just a cool person to talk to about Ayurvedic medicine and his own personal experiences with urine therapy and what that is all about. I encourage you to have a curious and open mindset with this one. It's, uh, he comes at it from a really practical way and provides a lot of context. This isn't a life hack by any means, and he'll be the first to say that. So if you have an open mind and you're curious about what this ancient old practice is, stay tuned because it's a lot of fun. Cheers. Welcome to the Two Nobodies Podcast with my dad. Cohen, so nice to meet you. I heard about your work through a friend who was getting into urine therapy and he's like, there's this book, The Golden Fountain. And I was like, there's no way Cohen's going to respond to me. You did and I appreciate it. And here we are. So welcome to Two Nobodies Podcast. You're coming in from the Netherlands, but welcome. I hope you're having a good day today. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. That's awesome. Uh, you're in the Netherlands right now. Were you born and raised there? Yes, I was born and raised in the Netherlands and uh, spent most of my life here. I did spend uh, a lot of time outside of the Netherlands. Also, I lived for three separate years in the United States. And uh, I think I visited India for more than 40 times by now. Wow. So more than more than up... me and my family, that's for sure. That's yeah. amazing. <laughs> yeah. What parts of India have you visited? Actually, all over. It started uh, for me in the north of India. And mm. later on, I went more to the south of India, where the last 10 years I spent a lot of time. And uh, right uh, last few months, I was was uh, thinking I would like to go back once again to uh, north India, where also this whole story with the urine therapy started for me. Yeah. What, a, what a, India is just a uh, dynamic place. Was it kind of like a bit of culture shock, I would imagine, when you first it went there? It definitely was. I went there yeah. first time in 91, 92. Yeah. And uh, I remember that when I arrived at the airport, uh, I entered a world which seemed to be uh, 30 years backwards yeah. from uh, what I came from. And it was really shocking for me at that time. And now if you've been there 40 times, you would have seen quite the progress, hey, in India? It's amazing. Uh, India is really developing into a first world and very high tech country, at least in the cities. Outside, you can still uh, find the old, uh, more traditional India. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, the cities in India have now developed into high rise, uh, uh, high tech cities. Yeah. There's There's this sense that I'm getting that people are starting to lose the kind of traditional medicinal practices in India. Um, have you noticed any of that? I mean, you you practice Ayurveda. Uh, is Are you noticing any sort of change where people are not necessarily practicing that as much anymore? They're relying more on Western medicine. Like, what's your sense of like the change there from a medicinal practice side of things? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Like uh, the, 
Western or English medicine really took over there. Mm -hmm. And there's uh, so much to say about it because even Ayurveda, after it came back, after India got its independence, it was structured at the universities um, along the lines of Western medicine. So that mm. also took away part of the traditional uh, teaching and um, philosophy behind it. But what I see at the moment is that uh, uh, a younger generation uh, is now there that has an increased uh, interest into exactly that old, uh, strong core of hmm. uh, ancient traditions. Really? It's trying to bring it back based on um, the ancient books. And that's, of course, something that's very special and precious to India, that it has an unbroken tradition. Uh, and it has, even though a lot of libraries were burned throughout history, still there's 10,000s of ancient texts that still can be accessed today. And, yeah. and it's quite amazing now, uh, if you look at ancient texts together with um, IT technology, they, they start to become more available. So mm. you see a lot of opening up of uh, ancient knowledge and then matching it up with modern findings. So also on a scientific level, they start to do uh, a very fast um, discovery of uh, that ancient knowledge and how much they actually knew at that time. Are, I, that's amazing. I didn't know anything about that. Are those ancient texts, I imagine they're in Sanskrit? Yeah, they're in Sanskrit. And of yeah. course, Sanskrit itself has been uh, classified in the meantime as a highly scientific language. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it supposedly is the best language if you would have to create computer language from any mm. of the existing languages on the globe. So that, that in itself is really interesting. Do you know, like since Ayurveda and these kind of ancient practices are so embedded in India, is there any desire to, and you, maybe you kind of alluded to this, uh, to kind of test things out scientifically now? Like like here, like in the Western world, there's no money towards this stuff, right? Which is often a criticism for like why the research isn't done on, you know, whether it be Ayurveda or traditional Chinese medicine or other sort of, you know, more, I guess, natural forms of treatment. But in India, may, I wonder if there is a maybe an incentive to kind of test out some of these ancient practices. Yeah, there, there definitely is. And there are now some uh, modern institutes that uh, work with uh, evidence-based Ayurveda mm -hmm. uh, clinical research, at least in, in, in an attempt to set that up in an appropriate way. And of course, there are like smaller clinical researchers, but they want to expand that. And uh, with that, we immediately touch upon uh, the difficulties of comparing it to Western medicine and to Western medicine clinical researches because the uh, there's a few major differences but one of them is that in western or english medicine kind of uh, research uh, one will always focus on isolated substances mm. for seeing what the effect is and that you can do in laboratories in a in in, in fact in a dead uh, non-living context yeah whereas whenever you look at traditional medicine they're always using complex medications. Plus life itself, our organism mm. is complex. Mm -hmm. It's very living instead of Things that. work in systems, right? They don't work in isolation. Exact. Yeah. So, so uh, it's, it's, it's very difficult to do good clinical researches in the line of Western medicine if you mm -hmm. want to really look at the effectiveness of traditional medicine. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, that's, and that's one of the challenges, as you said, like, um, the way we test things out scientifically is often done in isolation, but things kind of are a lot more complex. And if through traditional ancient medicines, we're kind of approaching things through systems, that's definitely, definitely a challenge. Um, when you, when you, I don't know, when was it that you brought Ayurveda to kind of the Netherlands and maybe talk about your role right now? Yeah, when I brought it to the Netherlands was actually after I studied it for two years with okay. an uh, Indian uh, physician, yeah. an Ayurvedic physician who had a who has a school in the United States. Mm. And that is the Ayurvedic Institute of Dr. Vazantlaut. And he uh, moved to United States in 1985 or so. And I studied there only many years later in uh, around 2000. Because at that time, it was very difficult for me as a non-Indian to study Ayurveda in India. Right. So I ended up studying it in the United States, studied for two years, came back to the Netherlands, and um, and eventually, through some coincidences, started my own academy here. And I'm now working with uh, more than 10 people, teachers, uh, in that academy. And we offer a bachelor-level um, accredited Ayurveda program, which is quite wow. special. Yeah, that's amazing. So it's it's almost like you know you're kind of a pioneer in terms of bringing some of that work to to the Netherlands for sure. Like when you're when you were thinking about okay, like how old would you have been in 1985 if you don't mind me asking? In 1985, I, well, that was not the time that I brought it to the Netherlands. I brought it to the Netherlands after 2000, and then I must okay. have been something like 35 or so. Okay, but still, like, I mean, okay, so yeah. you're in your 30s, and w- did you ever think, like, oh, my goodness, what am I doing? Or, like, this is a big risk, or um, is this even going to work out? Was there ever any thought about that? Or uh, Yes, it was, and, and, and I'm still running into that because there is a kind of cultural bias against anything that's non-European. Interesting. So, um, so that still keeps it quite difficult to... Um, to really bring this to the forefront in the full scope that it uh, should be brought forward with. Yeah. Because I still think that uh, Ayurveda is really a a very holistic, very all-round and Mm -hmm. inclusive kind of healing system Mm. that doesn't have to compete with uh, Western medicine. On the contrary, it can very well blend together. And then for the sake of getting more health for uh, patients, that, that working together would also be very important. And uh, I think it's going to come, but there, there's a few things that need to shift still. And one of them is that uh, Ayurveda really thinks from another kind of paradigm. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is the cultural bias. Mm. So there isn't, there, you're saying there still isn't that kind of openness towards this, this field? Yeah, to to uh, natural health in general, but yeah. particularly when it comes outside, from outside of Europe, uh, then uh, or outside from the Western world, mm. I would say, then uh, people are are uh, inborn unconsciously skeptic or yeah. rejecting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you kind of said something like, you know, you feel like this uh, healing system blends well. I think that is the challenge too, is just the way we frame. Uh, some of these other healing systems as like it often gets framed as alternative, right? Whereas yeah, I think like yeah, a better yeah. term is complementary, right? right? They're not like you're not trying to compete in any way with 
with Western or English medicine. It's more of, you know, you're there to support the patient. And if there's a role, an absolute role for Western and English medicine, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it has all the answers either. Right. And so no, like, it's, no. I think complementary is sort of the better term. Hey. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and apart from that, um, uh, you should look at it as a science with its own paradigms. Mm-hmm. And um, so blending and looking and learning from each other would be very important. Yeah. And uh, I think that uh, small steps are being made into that area at this moment. I was last week at a, Ayurveda conference in um, Berlin mm-hmm. at the Indian embassy. They staged it uh, together with a um, hospital in a regular hospital in Berlin, okay. where already the last 15 years they do a sort of joint research into the treatment of rheumatic disorders with both Western medicine and Ayurvedic uh, treatment. Mm-hmm. And they, they just continuously have very good results in that field. Yeah, uh, there was another doctor there who was representing a hospital in Germany that treats um, people with Parkinson mm-hmm. disease, and also they work together with a program where they blend Western medicine with Ayurvedic treatment, and also okay. there they have extremely good results. So, uh, the moment these things start to uh, be more documented, yeah, and official institution want to stage some exposure platform for that then slowly slowly it will uh, come more under the attention uh, of many people in a way that it should be brought into attention absolutely so you said like the indian embassy kind of helps stage events so that means that the indian government is still kind of like interested in this field and is willing to kind of support you know ayurvedic medicine it seems like hey yeah and, and the indian government is more than ever interested in that i think for two reasons and one of them is like an authentic reason that they are proud of their heritage and their uh, knowledge systems and they want to um, put that also outward and stand for it and the other thing is that uh, it is a potential export product that brings in uh, cash sure because uh, india has a very big and certainly in the last 10 15 years it has grown exponentially, a very b- big production business of Ayurvedic uh, herbal medicines. Mm. And, and Indian government sees what China has done. And China, over the last 20, 25 years, whenever they made agreements with other governments, it included the selling of Chinese traditional medicine. Mm. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. That would make yeah. sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, so so on that, Ayurvedic treatments, like for for the... The lay person who knows nothing about this field, how would how do you think it shows up for people? Like, what would people be common? Would they commonly think of? I guess that would be would surprise them that oh, that's actually kind of, that's an Ayurvedic treatment or something. <laughs> yeah, that's that's interesting. Like, uh, of course, people know it from Ayurvedic teas and skin mm. creams, etc., uh, and also from some Ayurvedic wellness treatments like massage. But if you really look at it, it's a very complex system of physiology that is behind there. So there's a science behind there that really looks at the whole body-mind system as a very um, complex system that regulates itself in keeping up life. And whenever there's a breakdown of that system in any part, they try to analyze where is the breakdown happening and what is the engineering uh, 
effect of that or the de-engineering effect in that body-mind system and then start to undo that. So mm. for that, you need to look at what were the causes of this breakdown, what was the process of that breakdown over years, and then what is the result now, which are the symptoms that people come to when they see, uh, come with when they come to see a doctor. So all that is taken into a very quite um, precise analysis. Mm -hmm. And then they start to look at measures uh, on how to organically restore that. So not to suppress it with chemicals, but how to organically and in tune with life to restore it. Okay, so let me let me break this down a little more. So, a pay, if someone comes in for their first sort of Ayurvedic mm -hmm. consultation, what does that what does that typically look like? Like, what does that process look like for somebody? Well, an Ayurvedic physician or a practitioner would ask, "What are the general complaints? Mm -hmm. uh, what uh, are the very extensively asking? What is the nutritional habits and the lifestyle habits of that person? Mm -hmm. Because that all plays in quite an important role." And then, of course, also check into what is like family diseases, your own personal family history. So basically a lot of things that a normal Western doctor would also do if they would have the time to mm -hmm. do a full assessment. And then because nutrition and lifestyle are uh, considered such important uh, causative factors in yeah. the breakdown of a system, they would first uh, and foremost start to look at how to... Um, start to tweak that into a more healthy kind of uh, situation. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, aside from that, they work in Ayurveda, and that's what the Ayurveda physician or practitioner would also do, is like try to pinpoint what is the constitution of that particular person. Because different constitutions will have different tendencies to go into uh, a disorder, so to okay. speak. Yeah. of the natural order. So that will also play a role in what kind of treatments you will start to uh, propose for that person. And, and that's a very interestingly a thing if we talk about blending with modern medicine. Modern medicine is more and more looking into personalized medicine at the yes. moment. Yeah. Because they have discovered that people with different genomic uh, uh, makeup will have different reactions to treatments, to medicines, etc. The treatment of men is different than the treatment of women because of yeah. hormonal chemical processes. Yeah. So also that needs to be taken into account. And uh, so, so it is quite full picture that an Ayurvedic physician addresses and then starts to, again, to look at like how to temporarily tweak nutrition, tweak lifestyle, uh, and when possible, do that also for a longer term, if that's healthier for people. And then, so that is the part that is uh, stabilizing. But then if there is a disease, Ayurveda, just like Western medicine, Western medicine says, then you need to do a sharper intervention mm -hmm. with medication. Mm -hmm. So uh, there is always... Um, a misconception that if you use herbs that it's not harmful and you can do whatever you want you can pamper around with some uh, herbs but in ayurveda they are very strict about it okay. strong medicines are considered to be uh, on a similar level as in the west chemicals so you need to be knowing what you do if you do an herbal intervention with strong medicinal herbs right and you can make mistakes there 
So they're very realistic about it. Also, there's other interventions so, such as um, enemas, uh, therapeutic vomiting, uh, therapeutic uh, laxatives, um, uh, bloodletting is mm. one. And um, that might be surprising for many people, surgery. And mm. that, that uh, um, traditional surgery also goes back a couple of thousands of years. In the ancient Ayurveda books that are uh, going back to 3,000 years uh, from our times, uh, there, there are quite precise and detailed descriptions about surgeries, including describing the different uh, scalpels that they used for certain surgeries. Wow. Yeah. Surgery, uh, well, that does surprise me for sure. So would, would an Ayurvedic physician be trained to be able to do these surgeries or how would they, how would that work? Nowadays, because India has this uh, close connection of uh, Ayurveda medicine and Western medicine, um, they will learn that part, but that will be the Western medicine part. And I already told you, like, uh, Ayurveda from its core is very inclusive. So whatever you can use in the universe uh, as a healing agent or treatment is -hmm. allowed, as long as it fits your therapeutic purpose. Yeah. So in that case, though, then the partnerships with, you know, Western medicine physicians, English physicians is critical, right? Because, you know, as an Ayurvedic physician, if you feel like a surgery is warranted, you're going to have to really sort of be able to express your concern in your case, I guess. And that person's going to, on that Western medicine physician is going to have to really kind of accept that, which isn't always the case, I would imagine, hey? No, no. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Part of your treatment, I imagine, would also be kind of diet changes, like you talk about lifestyle changes. Diet changes, I would imagine, would be a part of it too. Right. Diet changes is uh, supremely important because that's uh, with whatever we eat, we build our body uh, continuously every day. So if we want to have a stable body when we're 80, we have to start uh, making sure that everything goes right at the moment. If yeah. we uh, if we don't, the, we we would do the same with building houses. You know, if you want to have a sustainable house, you you have to make sure you use good building material and it's well processed in the in the process of building your house. If you don't yeah. do it, your house will collapse. Yeah. You, so on the well process, have you heard of the field of nutrigenomics? Uh, I have uh, heard a little bit about it, but uh, yep. I'm not uh, very uh, specifically. Uh... No, that's that's okay. I I had a I had a um, a guest probably a year ago or so, and he's a professor in nutrigenomics, and I was just really interested in this field because there is an impact of your genes on how it metabolizes certain foods and compounds, and so you could you know we talked about caffeine and not to say that I don't know if caffeine would ever be a part of any sort of Ayurvedic treatment, but let's just talk about caffeine. He gives us an example of how um, you could be some, you could uh, be drinking coffee and you could feel fine. And mm-hmm. we often think about like, okay, I'm feeling, I, I feel like I could process this caffeine or this coffee because of the symptoms that I'm seeing. But actually the, the signs and symptoms don't necessarily reflect what's actually happening when it comes to the metabolism and how that's being right. metabolized in your body. And if you did this kind of screening, these nutrigenomics testings, you could actually determine that whether you have a gene that allows you to metabolize 
caffeine pro- properly and actually get it rid of, get it pro- metabolizing, get it out of your body. And that exists across many compounds. So I just, I guess what I'm thinking about is like if uh, diet and, you know, or the processing of some of these herbs in specific quantities is a key part of Ayurvedic treatment. Like you said, if there are certain genetic inhibitors or barriers to be able to metabolize that, you're going to, you're not going to be able to probably fully realize that kind of treatment. Hey? Right. And, and I think exactly their new research will uh, also be very helpful yeah. in both these fields. There is um, a field in India on universities that is called Ayur Genomics, and that looks exactly into how different body types uh, metabolize. Uh, things in a different way based oh. on their genomic structure and they have already found a lot of clues there which um, uh, coincide with uh, modern medicine findings mm-hmm. so that that's really interesting and, and they're doing this very focusedly at the moment in India with um, especially uh, diseases that are quite common at the moment one of them again is rheumatic disorders that we mm-hmm. already talked about but other very important ones metabolic disease diabetes and how different body types develop different kinds of diabetes and how different etiological factors play a role in that, including nutrition. Mm-hmm. So th- this is all going to be highly important for for modern people, mm-hmm. uh, I think. Yeah. And uh, digestion and uh, metabolism plays a key role in there. We often, if, if uh, Western people start to think about nutrition, they think about what's on the label. Uh, of a package of course that's also important to see what's on the label but Mm. in fact more important is whether you can metabolize it or not yes yeah you can you can buy the best organic organic foods from a health food store but if you cannot uh, digest it or or metabolize it within your tissues it's worthless 100 percent. yeah uh do you um uh what was i gonna ask um when it comes to air, when it comes to the kind of cases that you typically see from patients, is there, do you, do you usually get those people who are kind of at the end of the ropes and they're like, I need something different. I want to try something different. Is it usually that the case? Or are you seeing more and more people kind of being a bit more proactive and, uh, with the approach and, and come to you folks a little bit sooner? Both you, you, you actually covered sort of the two uh, major parts of the, uh, groups that are coming there's a lot of people that uh, have tried everything and are very dissatisfied with their normal medical treatment that come mm-hmm. to Ayurvedic physicians those are difficult uh, cases often because there's a lot going on for these right. people there's a lot of disorder for a long time so to mm-hmm. repair that and to restore it you need to be very realistic and very thorough the other group that comes is uh, often either younger people or people who have uh, started to do yoga and who mm-hmm. got interested in maintaining good health. I see. Yeah, and that, that, that's uh, you see uh, as, uh, here in Holland, it's probably the same at your end. A lot of people that um, uh, become vegans because they're they're really serious about their health. Uh, now we, as an Ayurvedic educational institute, we have. Uh, to tell them that being vegan can also lead to a lot of trouble mm-hmm. if you're not vegan in the right way. And yep. again, if your digestion is not working, uh, then it can go as wrong as any other kind of yeah. food type. Yeah. yeah. So uh, we continuously are working with our school to 
put people on the track that it's not only what you eat, but how you digest it. And depending on what type you are, if that is the right kind of nutrition for your body-mind type. Yeah. Um, when you talked earlier about how in India you're seeing more young people kind of maybe switch a little bit back to or think consider ancient medicines or Ayurvedic medicine a little bit more, that was a bit surprising for me. I, I didn't I didn't expect to. But then I guess when you when you know there are people are getting more into yoga, people are kind of thinking about their health and their fitness in a different way. So maybe it makes mm -hmm. sense, but it definitely was a bit surprised by that. There's been a, quite a strong promotion in the last uh, five, ten years uh, mm -hmm. as part of uh, going back to uh, uh, Indian traditional values, mm -hmm. uh, which is not always what I would uh, appreciate because sometimes it's a little bit extreme on uh, uh, focused on nationalism. But within that flow, also you see that there's more appreciation for what they call Indian knowledge uh, systems. And that comes with uh, an increased interest in what they call a soft power. And, mm -hmm. uh, and you see uh, quite a number of good institutes that um, bring that up as, an, as a field of study. And there you can really see that young people jump on it and um, uh, really start to research it with a fresh and modern mind. And yeah. then going back into these old systems, suddenly they are the ones that can translate it also very mm -hmm. well to a modern world. And that's often what is needed. In the previous generations, uh, people were also quite in tune with this knowledge system, but they were not able to translate it either into Western terminology or into a terminology that was useful for younger people. And mm -hmm. now you really see that switch being made. Yeah. Well, and like you said, there's other, these are these other incentives that help kind of push that too, right? Like, yeah, the interesting point about, you know, there is a growing national pride in India and so to, um, that's kind of getting tied into it, but you also spoke about, there are these other kind of economic incentives, which kind of help mm -hmm. push these. So there might be a, a genuine interest on, in, in the field from a health perspective, but you have these other kind of catalysts that are kind of elevating the field too, hey? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and one big catalyst in the last five years was, of course, also COVID. Yeah. yeah. Where there was a, a, a big surge of a big need, in fact, for medicine. And, uh, mm -hmm. of course, there was a lot of Western medicine that was being uh, brought forward, whether it worked or not. But that was, of course, the strongest kind of um, uh, attempt to deal with this pandemic. But... Uh, India still being rooted in uh, traditional medicine, there was an enormous upsurge of interest in people at least to maintain their health, to, uh, uh, to support their immune systems. And uh, from ancient Ayurvedic sources, there was several um, uh, things being brought uh, forward that had to do with pandemics that were mm -hmm. written uh, thousands of years ago. They were describing how to deal with pandemics already back then mm -hmm. and wow. how important it is that exactly when there is a pandemic, you have to start watching your nutrition, your lifestyle. You have to counter fear. They really uh, describe it as, as yeah. such. And they say very practically, you have to make sure your nose is as clean and as protected as possible. And mm -hmm. we by, by now all know that this is the entrance mm -hmm. for a viral infection. 
Uh, and if you take care of this part well, even if you get infected, there's a chance that your infection will be less um, invasive. Uh, okay, well, you piqued me a curiosity on COVID. Like, what was what would have been like, you know, what would be in the Ayurvedic response to COVID? That's a really broad general question, but yeah, it's a yeah. it's a very broad general question, and uh, I I think uh, Ayurveda sees um, uh, also viral infections as real threats for systems mm-hmm. to start out with so they, they they don't live from the idea that oh if you're if you eat healthy uh, uh, and you live healthy then then you cannot be infected no they're very realistic if there if there's a big infection everyone can be affected yeah and each system can get thrown majorly out of order now depending on the nature of the uh, viral pathogen, you will see different systems, subsystems of the body getting affected. And what Mm -hmm. they saw quite quickly with COVID was that it was not just a lung disorder, but it was actually a viral invasion of the blood tissue and that the blood tissue got very much um, disordered because of this uh, virus. And that created, uh, uh, because the blood is connected with so many tissues, it could create a lot of havoc into vital uh, um, tissues and organs. So what they looked at, the people who were in some way dealing with it, was not just to treat the lungs, but particularly to treat the blood with bitters, cleansing agents, etc. And um, um, that could also explain why many people had these kind of pneumonias uh, that were not the regular pneumonias. If you have only a lung-related pneumonia, it will usually only affect one part of the lungs, and you can put people on an incubator because the other parts of the lungs will take the oxygen. Mm-hmm. Now, with COVID, this didn't work at all because the blood surrounding the lungs, that was affected, and it seeped in everywhere in the lungs from all sides. And if you put an incubator in in there and you start to pump oxygen, you push it back in there. So many people who became on uh, incubators in the beginning of COVID, they actually had not much chance by the treatment. Mm So this is uh, nobody could know that because it was an unknown kind of and kind of viral situation and yeah. uh, people did did whatever they could do best from their their knowledge but uh, i already talked uh, a few months into the covid pandemic period with some ayurvedic physicians said that that, that no you should really not treat this as a pure lung situation mm. much more as a blood infected uh, situation what are your thoughts about the rise in like these kind of zoonotic viruses and, um, you know, antimicrobial resistance? Like as a as in the position that you're in, what's your what are your general thoughts on this? Uh, yeah, it's actually a, a double kind of thing. Like uh, human beings uh, always live on the verge of being uh, uh, doing inventions mm-hmm. and having the hubris of uh, doing too much interventions into the world of nature. Mm-hmm. And we, when we transgress certain borders, the natural uh, disorder starts to lash back at us. 
not not as a punishment that would be a religious interpretation, but it's just a natural order that that needs right. to uh, uh, be in balance. And um, there's a lot of um, interference with natural systems overall mm-hmm. in our modern world. So then things start to become little, um, yeah, imbalanced all over. And then bigger, bigger collective groups can suddenly be subjected to, um, to waves of disorder and disease. And th- this is what happened. And then I don't even know if, if the virus was a, la- a laboratorium created virus, but that would also be a transgression of a natural order. And the interesting thing is that uh, in the ancient text of Ayurveda, whenever they talked about pandemics, they said like whenever uh, dharma or right behavior, and again, this is not a religious uh, kind of approach, but just as natural orders. If they're too too much disturbed by humanity, the world becomes more subject to pandemics. Wow. So... That's it's amazing. quite a clear, clear view on on uh, on on the wisdom of humanity. And yeah. whenever we start to play too much with that, we we evoke a certain risk. That's amazing. And, and you know what? Just like the, there almost sometimes feels like there can be a discounting from sometimes from Western medicine on some of those ancient on these ancient mm-hmm. healing practices, but there's so much wisdom there, right? It's like, uh, why absolutely. can't we, why shouldn't yeah. we be tapping yeah. into that? Yeah. And it doesn't mean that everything is still relevant. Like we'll still, we're still learning and discovering, but like, can't we just like how we study history to, to understand and inform, you know, the future. Why can't we do the same thing? Like, why can't we have an open mind towards that? When, when you hear people say that there's no science behind Ayurvedic medicine or other kind of uh, ancient forms of treatment. What's your reaction to that, Cohen? Yeah, it's it, it, it depends on whether that person is open. Uh, as I said, <laughs> there's like a cultural bias or not. So some yeah. people have already closed the door whenever sure. you bring it up. Uh, whenever there is an opening, I always advise people to uh, to really sit down with someone who is experienced in Ayurveda and the science behind it and then compare the paradigms on which the science is built. And and most people are actually, and I've seen that with a a number of Western doctors, when they are open and they take the time to look into Ayurveda, at some point they often go like, wow, this system actually has much more uh, in store for humanity than Western medicine does. Mm -hmm. Because Western medicine basically is very uh, repairing, very mechanical, very reductionistic. Uh, whereas Ayurveda basically covers um, nature, agriculture, uh, psychology, mm-hmm. uh, spiritual uh, aspects of human beings, etc. And then when it comes to the body system, again, it's very engineering. Yeah. You know, uh, Ayurveda is, it, it, on the one hand, it's, it's like... Um, a science that is rooted in consciousness, so you could call it a spiritual science. But on the other hand, when it comes to treating certain things in the body, it's 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 just as if you're in a garage. You have to mm-hmm. use the, the right oil for the for the right machinery parts of the body, and then you'll have effect. And they're very precise in that engineering as well. 
Yeah, I lo- I appreciate you kind of digging into that and giving uh, that kind of explanation. Uh, before we started this uh, recording, I said that, hey, I'm just going to lightly touch on Ayurveda. And here we are 40 minutes in and we're still going. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I appreciate the conversation about this. Uh, your, I don't know if it's journey or your exposure into urine therapy. Uh, I've heard you speak about this a little bit, but maybe give folks some context as far as like, I even got exposed to this. And I know you said that you're not maybe regularly doing this anymore or at all, but um, yeah, just maybe the start as far as how you got exposed to it. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's in, indeed, it's also a nice and a juicy story. Like uh, my very first visit to India, uh, after having had my culture shock in the first few days, <laughs> I ended up in an ashram in North India Okay. where um, after a few days of uh, a spring celebration, uh, we had to get to work because it was an ashram where they did a lot of karma yoga, which means just building things in the riverbed. It was far mm. away from um, civilized world. Like I mm. had to walk the last 10, 15 kilometers through a riverbed to end up in that place in the mountains. Did you know you were going to be doing this? at all yeah i i knew i, I okay. was very focusedly going to that okay. place because people had told me that 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 monastery was kind of paradise on earth now for me it turned out in the first few days that i was there it was uh, uh it it showed all kind of other faces because first of all i came there in a period when hindu nationalism started to thrive mm. and there was a whole bunch of sadhus that wanted to take over that particular ashram by force because they found uh, they they it was their opinion that too many Westerners came there. Right. So I arrived at a place in the Himalayas where people had told me it's heaven on earth, and it was guarded by the black guys with uh, machine guns from the from the Indian Army. Mm. <laughs> so that was already shocking. So after a few days of uh, going through that and uh, uh, a few other things. I, I went to work. We had to carry stones near the riverbed. Uh, a wall had to be displaced and rebuilt up somewhere else. And uh, after one hour, uh, while shuffling around stones, a big stone fell from uh, one and a half meters down on my feet. Ooh. And I was having bare feet, uh, sandals on. And basically, the, uh, the nail and the skin was off till the bone. Oh, God. So yeah. it bleeded heavily. I went Mm -hmm. back to the other side of the riverbed. They put bandage on it and they started to treat me with some antibiotic biotic Mm -hmm. cream. And after three days, uh, the the toe was twice as big, started to become black and it was hurting continuously, extremely. And I couldn't go anywhere because there was no hospitals nearby. It was difficult to bring me to another place. So I was really in a situation where I thought like, oh, and then people started to uh, uh, also warn me, like if this goes on with your toe, looking that it starts to turn black, then um, if it gets really bad, it might be amputated. Mm. And then right on that same day that I was uh, struggling with that, I met uh, a woman also from the Netherlands who was working in the office in Mm. that ashram. And she she said like, you know what, Kuhn, what what you should do is, um, Next time you go to the toilet, you pee in a glass and you take some uh, uh, clean uh, cloth 
and you soak that in your urine and you bind it around uh, your toe instead of the bandage that you have on there now. And I thought, like, you know, it can't get uh, worse anyhow, so let's give it a try. Let's she was try. quite convincing. And yeah. she handed me also a little booklet, which was called The Water of Life, written by a Britishman on the use of urine okay. as a healing agent. Okay. Now, this book went a lot further. It went, was also about drinking urine, but this yeah. was enough for me at that moment. Yeah. And I tried it out. And within two, three hours, the pain started to subside. And uh, that was remarkable. It could have been a sheer coincidence, but sure. I just kept on keeping it wet. The woman mm -hmm. also supported me in doing this. So she said she had very good experiences with that in the past, with any kind of infection there. So I thought like, okay, I'll keep on doing it. And then after two days, I took off that bandage and all the black parts had fallen off and a new pink skin had totally formed wow. a new uh, cover on the wound. The swelling was totally gone. It looked healthy again, except for one little spot where still some uh, humidity or some moisture was leaking out. And yeah. that was it. You know, in, in uh, two days, uh, that whole toe came out actually as a snake uh, renewing its skin, yeah. uh, it was okay again. Yeah. So that really had a big impression on me. And I, of course I was happy because I thought like, oh, the, the worst part is over and this yeah. looks really good now. And how long did you continue to do that? Like once the new skin came, did you just um, essentially stop that sort of uh, urine soaked wrap or? Yeah, I, I did it a few more days and then, yeah. I, then it looked kind of normal again and I left yeah. it so I could walk again the pain yeah. was gone so that was all uh, yeah that all got a lot better and and in the meantime I started reading that booklet mm. and uh, and that first of all came as a shock but you know sometimes it's the best to read something that's shocking when you're <laughs> yourself in a situation yeah. Yeah. Uh, where you're kind of broken open so yeah. I thought like well if it uses if it works for my toe then if this guy writes uh, about drinking urine and that uh, many people have done that over the centuries and in, uh, in, mm -hmm. in history. Um, okay, so I thought like, uh, I'm here in, uh, in, in India, in the Himalayas, a lot of weird things are happening for me. Uh, so why not an extra weird thing on top of it? So let's <laughs> give it a try. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that it was a Dutch woman that, that, raise this to you hey like it's yeah, very very interesting yeah. yeah out of everyone that's around you it's this white in the Dutch woman nowhere in India. Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah uh what do you think it was about like um the urine that helped heal your toe like because because urine correct me if i'm wrong there's a few components there's urea there's uric acid there's um i think creatinine uh is is part of it and then I don't know what else it is, but first of all, maybe what's in what's in urine first? Yeah, first of all, it's uh, of course the biggest part is uh, just the good old normal water, okay, and then yeah. we indeed we have urea and some salts and uh, and a whole bunch of other stuffs. And I think that particularly also when you um, uh, let urine age a little bit, then also ammonia is formed in there. Mm. And that's like a cleansing agent. So it's also at that moment also becomes bactericidal. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think that combination together with the urea, which is kind of like can be transformed again into healing tissues, 
and mm -hmm. it, as such it's also used in a lot of uh, uh, creams and mm. uh, even in toothpaste they add it uh, so urea itself is is a very nutritious uh, harmless uh, substance that uh, can mitigate kind of uh, heat situations in the skin so for for itch for pain etc uh, urea in creams can be very well used so i think that's exactly what it did and of course there's also some salt in there i think it really cleansed the whole um, infection and then started to uh, also create uh, a, a very fast healing now there's an interesting story related to that which i heard of uh, later by people who had done some research into urine therapy and they told me that when a baby is in the womb then we're floating in amniotic fluid and that yeah. is basically uh, what the baby is continuously peeing out and drinking up again so there we are actually floating in, in some kind of urine-like substance. And that in itself you could leave for what it is. But then they had found out that if in some situations they have to do that, like a surgery on a fetus in the womb, that if they did surgery, then they discovered that there were no scars left or hardly any scars. So they saw that there was more healing taking place uh, uh, in such situations than when somebody uh, would be already born. So that again uh, shows that obviously there is some reaction taking place through which yeah. skin healing goes quite well. And that's exactly my experience with um, um, the wound on my foot, that, that it was healing really perfectly. Yeah. Um, do we know what amniotic fluid is? Is it, like you said, it's, it's there's urine, but like, is it mostly just that, or what's what's amniotic fluid made out of? Yeah, I think it's it's like eighty percent of it seems to be like the recycled uh, amount of urine yeah. of the baby because the lungs are still closed at that time, so uh, uh, they're very small; they don't take in air, but the baby uh, uh, breathes in that amniotic fluid. Okay. And it seeps in, in uh, it, so there's, there's a loop actually mm -hmm. going on. Yeah. So, and, and I think uh, the, so just to go from there, I think the, the, the topic of looping in the body to um, keep the system going is something that we under evaluate often. Yeah. Uh, we have an internal looping all the time and that is what generally is uh, translated as the healing self-healing system within the body if if something goes wrong uh, here in my head uh, some other tissue can notice that and start to produce something that then helps to rebalance that because everything all the time goes in loops only when that relooping gets really out of order we get sick but till that time there's a lot of uh, this balance underneath the surface that continuously through relooping is being repaired. Okay, that's an that's interesting. I I hadn't thought about it that way. That's interesting. The, this looping kind of effect. Um, just make just so I understand. If you're thinking about a fetus, for instance, that looping is that constant sort of urination, but also you know ingestion. And is, would you say that that's kind of a looping effect too? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. It's part of, so, of how the how that whole organism starts to grow itself and keep itself safe. Okay. So so I think I wonder if for people they're hearing this, they're like, okay, that makes sense. But no longer we're not in the womb anymore. No. We're now urine. If you think about urine on its own, there's no natural looping that happens with just like urine, right? Um, Correct. We, we, there's this, you know, we all, I shouldn't say we all, but there's this obviously predominant thought that it's a waste product, right? Like yeah. it's, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's something that, you know, our kidneys filter out and uh, mm-hmm. the, the kidneys filter the blood and you get this urine, urine that's created. And so we naturally think of it as a waste product. It's one thing to think of it like I, I really appreciate you your the story you gave and you talking about what your thoughts are as far as how it healed um, your skin from a topical perspective. That is like one thing I think people can kind of like man that I can I can get with that. When you think about now drinking urine, it the obviously there is going to be this mental barrier of like well it, that's why would you in, ingest something that was your body was trying to get rid of. So maybe help sort of bridge the gap for people. Yeah, and, and that, that's a correct way of uh, approaching it. I mean, it, it is a waste product, but it, that doesn't make it... Some people, uh, sometimes people connect waste with toxic. Uh, with toxic, because, okay. But, yep. Yeah, but a waste is not necessarily a toxin. Hmm. There's a lot of waste products in nature that if you use it properly, it, again, it can become useful. So, uh, and I'm also, even though I tried um, uh, quite uh, radically out uh, what urine drinking was, I drank my urine every morning for 10 years, full stop. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, in that whole period, uh, I was uh, doing well. It didn't kill me. uh, And I was generally considered to be a quite healthy person. Mm-hmm. I, I still am to to some extent, but at some point I also uh, uh, evaluated for myself that it's not not necessary to to do this looping with a waste product all the time. But just consider it. Uh, it was an experiment for myself, but I would mm-hmm. tell other people it's not necessary to do that. Uh, but just consider it as a fluid that is produced by a natural organism that can be a medicine when properly used in the right circumstances. As we do basically with many things. And with many things that are also a lot more dirty, for that mm-hmm. matter, if you look at it. We, no, uh, most of us, uh, if, if we talk about drinking urine, people would go like, uh, bah, yeah. Whereas many people go and drink um, milk, you know. Uh, if you would put both under a microscope, especially with modern milk. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, on, in modern milk, you would find a lot of pus molecules. You know? A lot of what kind of molecules? Pus. Okay. Uh, you know, this greenish infected stuff. Yeah, because, P-U-S, pus, yeah. Yeah. And uh, if you would put urine, it, it is not sterile, but it is a very clean substance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Uh, with milk, nobody will have a problem to drink it straight from the bottle or, uh, mm-hmm. and they will never think about, oh, if I look this under the microscope, it would be horrible. Uh, with pee, everyone uh, thinks like, oh, that's horrible. Mm-hmm. You know? So it's a little bit of a psychological bias that yeah. we have built into it. And um, the other thing is that uh, if you just look at 
the physical makeup of a human being. Hmm. You know, the pee comes out through the genitals. You know, mm -hmm. and the genital area is also an area which creates new life and needs hmm. to stay fairly clean. Right. So it would be weird if God or the universe would have created the body uh, uh, to combine um, uh, the creation of new life, either through semen or through uh, ovum and the baby, yeah. and, and, and put it all in the same place where a very dirty, toxic substance would flow. You know? That's interesting. Yeah. yeah so uh, if you just look at that uh, physical anatomical combination of things, you can already see that that urine must have also some function to keep that area clean and healthy. And that is different with fecal matter, because some people also ask me the question, oh, if you can drink urine, why can't you eat shit? Now, yeah, that, that's, <laughs> that's, uh, it's a question, but that is really different because fecal matter has a lot of bacteria and a lot of pathogens in there. And that is not, it's close to the reproductive area, but it's not the same system. Mm. It's a different system. Yeah. And, you, and, and everyone knows that if there's fecal matter going towards the reproductive organs, it can create a lot of trouble. But sure. that's not the case with urine. Yeah. It doesn't create any trouble there. No, that's a that's a good point. Um, with urine, if if urine is uh, our body's way of uh, getting rid of like excess, whatever it might be, or um, to to reconsume that, like is is, and I don't know. Maybe we should talk about sort of what the mm. right way of actually engaging in your therapy would be. But if you're constantly drinking things that are your body is getting rid of because there's excess of it, is there mm. is there a, a harm in that anyway yeah there could be a harm in that because of course it is a, as with any substance that you take into excess it can disturb the normal processes so and and urine can be depending on what you eat and drink can be quite uh, uh, sour or even pungent hmm. uh, and if you ingest too much of it it can really give you diarrhea it can uh, disturb uh, other systems so there is a kind of protocol to, for urine therapy that if you ingest it in higher quantities, you need to be very careful about your diet mm. and uh, you need to be fairly clean in what you uh, put into your body and to what you subject yourself. So and you will also notice that uh, uh, once you start eating cleaner, the taste of your urine becomes quite mild and easy, easy to ingest. If you eat a lot of meat and drink a lot of coffee or... Uh, processed foods, then the urine starts to uh, uh, taste rather nasty. Hmm. So sometimes it has that effect on people that <laughs> uh, they want to try out urine therapy. And because of the direct feedback of the taste of their urine, they actually have a very strong impulse to start eating more healthy. Interesting. Yeah. So is, it, is this something you'd say... Like, is this something that would be added to someone's lifestyle change or would it be something that like you just gave a good example of like maybe prompt somebody to actually make changes to their lifestyle or dietary changes because of, of the taste of their urine? Like, would someone start with this or would they start with, yeah, some of those other kind of big changes that need to happen? I, I would always suggest people to first adjust their diet. Yeah. And, um, and then also to make sure that they 
yeah, that they avoid any uh, too much toxic uh, substances in their life and then they could uh, try it out for themselves. And uh, I think that for many people, it's already uh, kind of a challenge to just dip their finger in a glass and put it on the tip of their tongue because mm -hmm. yeah, it, it's a very interesting, psychologically, it's very interesting things. Like I, uh, I can tell you that I have been to uh, uh, just parties like for uh, uh, where people converse with each other and of course then some some someone will ask me so what are you doing and then oh, you know i'm a little bit careful to whom i say what yeah. and yeah. so like i oh, I, have, I have written a book on urine therapy and they go like what you know that, uh, yeah and then uh, but, so uh, and at that, that time i was living in amsterdam in Amsterdam, it's a lot, uh, people are a lot, doing a lot of weird things, you know, whether it's <laughs> substance abuse or going out uh, and yeah. uh, do all kind of sexual things. Yeah. The, the interesting thing was, was that those things were uh, you could talk about, but sometimes if I talked about urine therapy, people would walk out the room, slam the door, and didn't want to talk to me wow, anymore. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so psychologically, there are sometimes a really strong aversion uh, built in. And also, this is something that for human beings is really interesting to uh, to look at. You get to Why learn how it? open people really are, hey? Yeah, yeah. And, and how, uh, often how twisted a kind of relationship we have with our own body fluids. Mm. Uh, and then we don't look at, at what it is face fact, but we react on a sort of emotional impulse. Yeah. You don't, you don't get me as the person who, like, would would suggest that drinking urine is kind of like a life hack, right? Like a lot of people, there's a there's you know this this push towards personalized medicine. There's a huge, everyone's trying to figure out how do I how do what what's the next life hack that I can think of to mm -hmm. to you know keep myself young or keep myself fit and healthy. Um, you don't get me as that kind of person. Like 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 anything, as you said, with Ayurvedic medicine, there's a purpose. There's a clear plan to this. So. How do you, what would your cautions be to somebody who picks this up, listens to it and like, oh, I should start drinking my urine and this is going to be great for my health. Like what are your, what are your cautions or what are your thoughts? How do you uh, advise somebody on that front? Yeah, I, I would really advise to uh, what we already discussed to first make sure that you eat and drink uh, clean stuff and also to not go into a mode of that anything for that matter in life is kind of like a miracle healing thing. Uh, that's not how nature works. There's a, uh, we are all beings of context. Our context is very complex. And there's never one factor that can uh, solve the puzzle. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I, I would say, like, see, if you want to do something with urine as a therapy, uh, uh, approach it as an experiment. See where mm -hmm. it works for you, where it doesn't work. It's a substance like any other substance in uh, the universe and ayurveda is very clear they, they they are they have their own paradigms about evaluating it and using a substance in the right context and they clearly say like any substance in the universe can be either a poison or a medicine depending on the context mm -hmm. and i think the same is true for urine mm. so for some people it will work but you have to be aware of the full context and uh, since um, particularly if there's health problems you need to have expertise to evaluate, to assess the context. Mm -hmm. You need to uh, contact someone who is 
uh, an expert in natural medicine to some extent and, and not expect uh, miracles from it if you start using it by yourself. Then it, it maybe it helps for you, but maybe it, it does something that you don't want. And um, that would be irresponsible. Um, would you say urine therapy could be used for both like acute issues, but also chronic issues? Yeah, I think it it can. My view is that it generally works more for acute issues. Okay. Yeah, and for chronic issues, you would need uh, uh, really contextual medicine that you need to take the right plant medicine, maybe also Western medicine mm-hmm. if if uh, if needed, uh, and that you need the right uh, restoration of tissues. Because whenever there is um, a chronic disease, basically that's a sign that within your body, vital tissues have been damaged or depleted. Mm-hmm. And Ayurveda really looks at it also. They have a whole uh, specialized branch, which is called rejuvenation, revitalization. Mm. That is often what they prescribe as being necessary after an acute infection. It's a really nice flowing back to the covid situations see a lot of post-COVID people at the moment. Basically, uh, the infection has damaged in different person, different tissues and systems. And first, a good assessment is necessary. Mm -hmm. What has been damaged? Then to treat that very focusedly with rejuvenation kind of therapy. And then you see that people really make big improvements. Mm -hmm. So going back to the urine therapy, uh, if if you under-evaluate that and you start drinking urine as kind of miracle medicine, it won't undo particular tissue and system damages. So then you might start to live in a bubble, but it could be a very unrealistic bubble as to your needed kind of treatment. This is fantastic. This is... Um... I think this is what people need to hear when they on anything like the approach mm-hmm. that you kind of gave on any sort of these quick fixes or people interpret something as like a life hack like you really gave some good um just good thinking on how to approach the situation um, are people surprised to learn that you're the author of like this book the golden fountain you mm-hmm. tried urine therapy for 10 years but you know are you know are you do you still drink your urine from time to time or is it it's you're kind of done with it very occasionally um i know i have it with me wherever i go that's a good thing to know like particularly in the world if things would happen that are like uh, as we saw recently in turkey if there's an earthquake and you're trapped uh, you can use these kind of things or if there's no other medicines near mm-hmm. <clears throat> nearby i would definitely use it again mm-hmm. i do use it topically quite often Okay. For example, I'm wearing contact lenses myself. Every now and then I get like really irritated eyes, mm-hmm. um, either because of a light allergy or, or dust or whatever. And um, I have tried many things, also like these eye drops, etc. But I still have found that, particularly when my eyes start itching, that the best thing is just uh, take a little drop of urine, put it in my eye, uh, and with in no time the itching and the irritation subsides. Same sometimes Mm. with uh, blocked ears. When I can't get it unblocked because of earwax and seawater, Mm -hmm. if I'm in tropical climate, 
I take a small pipette and with urine, it's the best way to get it done without further uh, disturbing or irritating my ears or creating infection. So for those kind of things, it really works wonders. Hmm. Yeah, I wonder if it, the ear thing has to do with like the acidic components to urine, because I know that um, some, um, so, uh, what are those hearing doctors called? Ophthalm- not ophthalmologists, those are eyes. Um, nice. uh, anyways, uh, I've, I've heard that in order sometimes to clear out earwax, you could use hydrogen peroxide, right? Yeah. Although peroxide, is that acidic? Anyways, I, I wonder if like the acidic There's components the, to urine can help yeah. with that. Yeah. And salt also breaks the up. Salt, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. You can, but, but the point is I've tried it also with salt water, but then often my ears start to feel really, uh, sore and painful from the salt. Yeah. But, uh, urine seems to have sort of the right mixture to do the job. And to yeah. heal whatever there is in irritation in the ear at the same time. So that makes it, for me, a very good uh, and useful medicine. Yeah. If someone is wanting to drink their urine, um, in terms of actually doing so, like, would it be, you know, when you go for a urine test, they always say, like, catch it midstream, right? Because you want to clear out things. Mm-hmm. Um, would it be similar to that? Like, you kind of want to pee a little bit and then... You know, yeah, I, w- I would follow those old instructions. Like there was a reason for that. Uh, I think that the first stream washes away anything that has come uh, into the urethra from outside. Mm-hmm. And the last part of urine can contain some more uh, sediment. So for that reason, probably they, they said that midstream was the best to use. Okay. And And then in terms of morning urine versus like midday, like morning, obviously I imagine is very more, much more concentrated um is that sort of um yeah again maybe I, there's a purpose for each each uh for what what time what type of urine you're using i guess perhaps i don't know but any yeah. thoughts on that yeah uh, thoughts but they're hypothet- hypothetical thoughts and okay. it would be nice to still figure things out uh, hmm. uh, a lot of the interest in urine therapy came because um some scientists in Australia looked into why uh, uh, yogis were drinking morning urine and what hormonal effect it has. And it, it seems to be that in the morning there's a breakdown product of melatonin in urine that uh, has a certain kind of effect on the whole hormonal system ju- throughout the day. Now, mm. whether that really is like a major factor, I don't know, but it would be an interesting thing yeah. to uh, to discover and uh, recently there has been a lot of attention uh, by chinese hardcore scientists into the availability of stem cells in mm. urine and also there it would be interesting to see like if because of uh, a kind of um, passive rest in the night if mm-hmm. in the morning urine there would be a higher uh, um, number of these stem cells in the urine uh, so that that again is an area of research that people are diving into now so sometimes you see something happening in traditions where you can't really explain it and yeah. only when then suddenly someone starts to look at it from another kind of perspective they sort of discover the clue of this mm-hmm. so i i'm not sure if that stem cell theory uh, is going to bring more or is going to shed more light on the use of urine therapy. But it's interesting that these Chinese scientists have uh, or are doing now some work on this. 
That's and that they are very enthusiastic about it. Yeah. 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 Uh, athletes are another demographic where I don't know if you work with athletes at all, but they're always obviously looking for the, the cutting edge to something. Uh, when I was doing a bit of kind of preliminary research on this, there are videos of people like MMA athletes and, you know, people are like, ah, you know, getting into urine therapy and all this from an athletic standpoint, is there any edge that drinking your own urine could give you? Do you think? I don't know. It would be an interesting thing also to look at, because I do know that, uh, if you do, uh, like high profile athletics, you, you go over a certain point where some of your body cells are broken down, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they end up in the urine as kind of like a waste product or a breakdown product. Mm. Now, um, I do know that urea, whenever you take that back in, and I don't know how much of that actually translates also into urea, if urea comes back into the small intestine, it's being re uh, metabolized into proteins so that is one of the reasons why they say that if people do a urine fast on only urine mm-hmm. and, uh, and and re- processing all the urine actually they don't lose a lot of weight uh, weight mm. uh, because the urea again produces proteins uh, and that it does so we know also uh, but without knowing it uh, they feed urea always to calves as extra nutrition. Oh, so okay. whenever you take in urea, it's a good it's a good nourishment. Hmm. Yeah? So, so, but whether that would work like this for athletes, I don't know. We would have to yeah. uh, look at that more precisely. Yeah. Is is one more question before maybe move on to the the last two questions of the episode? But. Uh, um, is this hard on your kidneys at all? Like digesting urine or yeah, processing urine? Uh, I would say no, but then again comes in the protocol that you have to do. If yeah. you re- reprocess a lot of your urine in case one would choose for that, then you have to, and that's also written in the older uh, writings on urine therapy, you have to take a lot of vegetables, fruits, etc., cetera, uh, so that this digestion in the kidneys you start to pee a lot also then. Mm. So you don't want to um, exhaust your kidneys too much. It's sure. not good for the kidneys. Yeah. So the, the, the nutrition you take in those periods needs to be fairly light so that the kidneys can easily process. Yeah, uh, and, yeah. yeah. Okay, uh, final thing. Uh, in terms of takeaways that you want people to have when it comes to urine therapy, what do you want people to walk away with? Uh, especially to uh, to look at uh, the the miracle of nature and that uh, uh, our life contains more surprises and mysteries than we sometimes uh, tend to realize. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fantastic. Um, are you okay to move on to the two questions I ask every guest? Sure, sure. Go ahead. Okay, so the first question, yeah. our five for dinner question: Dead or alive? Who are five people you'd want to have dinner with? And if you're going to have them, just wonder if you'd have them individually or, or as a group. Yeah, I was thinking about it when uh, when I saw that question. I thought like I, I would like to spend time with them individually, with most yep. of them. And um, shall I just start with number Go one? Go for it, yeah. And tell me, tell me if you want to explain yeah. why you chose them. That, that's yeah. great too. Yeah. So. 
the first one is uh, a man called Vimalananda, and he was uh, the sort of spiritual uh, Ayurvedic, Vedic astrology mentor of one of my teachers, and hmm. that teacher is Dr. Robert Svoboda. He was the first American physician, a Western physician, to do a full Ayurveda studies in Pune in India in the wow. 1970s. Wow. And uh, he was able to do that because he coincidentally ran into a mentor um, that was a highly spiritual kind of guy, but a completely undogmatic kind of holy guy. Because hmm. this guy was drinking two liters of whiskey and smoking a package of cigarettes a day. And, uh, and at the same time, he had uh, extreme capabilities to, uh, to do uh, even more. When it, whenever he drank more, he could do more. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I would be still knowing all the stories about this kind of wizard. I would like to know uh, and meet him in the dinner uh, to really experience what kind of personality he was. Mm. Uh, he must have been a quite powerful and deep person. And also because, um, and that uh, relates back to things that we've talked about, he was always cooking for himself. He, he basically said, don't let anybody else cook for yeah. you if, if you are not knowing the art of cooking. Um, and so uh, he would make the most tasty meals, simple but tasty, very tasty meals for anyone who came to his house. And he would refuse to go to any restaurant because he said, whatever the cook is thinking ends up in your food and that would spoil your mind. Yeah. yeah. I thought it was kind of interesting stuff. So having dinner with him uh, and a dinner cooked by him would be one. Sounds pretty good. Yeah. On my wish list. Uh, Number two would be a guy called Brian, Brian Morarescu. Okay. And he has written quite recently, he's a young scientist in the United mm-hmm. States. Uh, he has written uh, a book with the title, The Immortality Key. And he is talking about another kind of meal, mm-hmm. namely also the meal of uh, Jesus Christ with his apostles. And mm-hmm. they have done now a fair amount of research into that last meal. Uh, and they have discovered that in Christianity, in the first few centuries, Christianity being a mystery school, mm. they were actually using a kind of medicinal wine that contained uh, hallucinogenics. Mm. So that's, uh, and they can substantiate that now by doing research into uh, uh, chemical archaeology. Yeah. So, so they have found quite a, a lot of interesting things. This uh, guy, Brian Morarescu, has done also research into the Eleusinian mysteries of ancient Greece. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, I am classical, classically schooled myself. My basic studies at university was Greek and Latin, and the teachings of Socrates and Plato are mentioning yeah. these Eleusinian mysteries all the time. Mm-hmm. Now, they have also discovered that some very important nutrition part of our lives, which is wheat, yeah. that they were and barley, that they were making beer of that. And if you, uh, uh, if with the making of the beer, there is a kind of fungus in there, hmm. you get 
a kind of molecule in there that is the molecule from which they basically later synthetically made LSD. So okay. there's now this uh, theory which is quite substantiated that at the Eleusinian Mysteries they were making use of this fungus-based molecule made from beer because it was always in the harvest season or in the beer making season that they had this um, mystery festival where everyone went into the temple and had a complete uh, out of their mind experience uh, which was a secret uh, uh, experience uh, but everyone would come back and say like i have seen the divine yeah <laughs> wow <laughs> so so this guy, Brian Moreresco, he himself was raised by Jesuits, uh, studied classical languages, and then became a lawyer. Mm -hmm. But he, he spent a lot of time with, uh, without ever having taken any hallucinogenic himself to look into what was actually the case with these old mystery schools. Very cool. Really interesting stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be a fascinating, fascinating yeah. dinner conversation for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Who's number three? Number three is Hildegard von Bingen. She okay. was a nun in Germany in the 1100s. Mm -hmm. And um, she uh, used to have visions at a very young age. But basically, she became a big scholar. And I also like it because we tend to, as scientists, we always tend to bring in men. But she was... She has written uh, dozens of books and uh, also on nutrition yeah. and herbs. And mm. all her findings come very close to Ayurvedic findings mm. in terms of humors, uh, physiology, uh, nature, uh, etc. So she has left um, behind a lot of very useful recipes also. Yeah both on food level and on medicinals. So very, and to do that very in the 1100s, way. like that's definitely, Amazing. wow, incredible. Yeah. Yep. 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 Okay, number four. Number four, Nelson Mandela. Hmm. Uh, because uh, like uh, if we talk about social context and uh, then in Ayurveda also, they say that it's really important to, uh, to be, to feel connected on a real soul level with uh, your community mm -hmm. and I think like if somebody can stay in prison for 40 years under dire circumstances and walk out and still feel connected even with his supposed enemies mm -hmm. then you must have reached a level of knowing your soul your insight so well who you are and that you're not different from anybody else that I think like just to be close to him and to experience him as a uh, human being uh, would be like a great experience. Yeah, uh, and so and he's so grounded in his purpose, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And makes it so 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 normal. It's not like a a church kind of religion thing. He just lives it full mm -hmm. force. Yeah. Uh, one of my a uh, couple of guests ago, um, Prakash Deer, he was a, mm -hmm. a South African uh, defense attorney, and he got to meet. Nelson Mandela and he talks about that story and um, he said he knew his uh, his wife Winnie very well so mm -hmm. um, but yeah just uh, yeah it's someone I haven't really studied a whole lot but uh, the more and more I hear about him obviously it, we all know what he's done but um, the person and the and the man you know just incredible 
So yeah, 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 that's great. Uh, number five. What's your last one? Number five is Maria Sabina, another okay. woman, uh, totally not learned. She couldn't re read nor write, and she was living as a village healer in the Mexican mountains. And uh, she gave people another kind of meal to eat. So I would like to have my meal on that level. That is magic mushrooms. And uh, she was a poet, yeah. uh, couldn't read or write, uh, but she must have been a fantastic person uh, uh, as a healer and a knower of nature. Yeah, yeah. that's fantastic. That's a cool one too. <laughs> uh, okay, last question. Besides the circle of life, what do you know for sure? Yeah, well, uh, I just mentioned uh, Socrates and uh, uh, slowly, slowly I'm moving towards uh, his conclusion that, uh, that uh, it's best to know nothing for sure. And that the only thing, know you, uh, the only thing you know for sure is that you know nothing. And that, mm -hmm. of course, has a deeper level as well, because like uh, uh, one of my, uh, we didn't talk about it too much, but... Uh, uh, one of my other things that I really uh, foster in my life is non-duality and uh, consciousness. And uh, if you really also mentally um, sort of uh, dissect uh, the, the, uh, our reality, then, then you see that basically everything is fleeting and will pass. But the only thing we know is that we are and that we are conscious. Mm -hmm. Those are the only two really solid conclusions that you can make. Uh, so I, I tend to hang out with those conclusions and yeah. uh, uh, see what that brings for the remainder of my physical life. You know, you're speaking like a true nobody here, Cohen. I appreciate, uh, appreciate that. Uh, hey, this has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, I didn't know where it was going to go. I'm, I, I appreciate you being vulnerable and and uh, just expressing yourself uh, fully and wholesomely. Um, that goes a long way. Uh, mm -hmm. It just it contributes to the authentic uh, conversations that I've been trying to have with people on this podcast. So so thank you for fully committing to that. Um, I know it's a, it's a, it's a tricky topic. And even though you've had so many years of experience in, in both Ayurvedic medicine and, and urine therapy, um, again, you mentioned this to somebody who has no idea and you're going to floor them, but, uh, you, you came at this with a very curious mindset and, and you also gave a lot of, um, you know, you didn't just say, yep, yeah, this is the, the cure all elixir, right? Like there's a, there's a purpose and a reason for everything that you do and the way you approach your work. And that shows up even the way you're trying to express the benefits of something like urine therapy. So, um, thank you for, for bringing that to this conversation and, uh, yeah, just appreciate me and get to know you, getting to know you a little bit better and, uh, you're welcome back anytime to, to talk about these topics. It's, it's, uh, there's so much as you said, on the Ayurvedic side, there's so much advancement that's happening. Yeah, and, and especially in terms of the, the, um, the scientific research into this field and, or the, the last piece you talked about, like there's stem cells in, in urine that the Chinese are kind of looking into. Um, mm -hmm. if you ever feel in the future, like there's an opportunity to talk more about this stuff, always happy to have you on. So anyways, thanks for making time for me today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank, thank you very much for your openness also. You bet. Okay, cool. Thanks everyone for uh, joining today and listening to this episode. I uh, hope you like it, subscribe, do all those wonderful things, and we'll see you on the next one. Cheers.